Okay, hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. Today is a conversation with Adam Chekrud, co-founder of Spring Health, and we will be talking today about technology and the role it's playing in uh, modern mental health interventions. I'm really excited to have Adam on the podcast. I think his perspective on mental health and mental health interventions and technology is going to be really interesting and fun to chat about and perhaps even helpful to listeners who are considering therapy or maybe engaging with their employer to see what kinds of treatments or options are available. So Adam is the co-founder of Spring Health, a behavioral health startup. They connect employees with mental health services online through telehealth and and through an app that I recently downloaded. Um, And it seems like either currently or in a previous life, Adam was also an academic studying the efficacy of various behavioral health interventions. Specifically, it seemed on depression or symptoms of depression. Um, So welcome to the podcast, Adam. And yeah, do you want to say a little more about all these things, but maybe first with a bit of your background? Yeah, welcome. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. Um, So Super excited to talk about all of all of the above um, as soon as we get around to it. My uh, my background. So I, I came to the U.S. Um, to get my Ph.D., joined the psychology program at Yale, uh, and like you mentioned, kind of was was really focused on ways that we can improve the treatment of mental health conditions, uh, particularly focusing initially on on depression, just just because it was the most prevalent, and just because you know there was a, kind of this whole concept of data sharing or data aggregation was was much uh, much further along in depression, I would say, than it is for other conditions. And so start out, you know, as a PhD student, uh, basically developing technology that will help us make better decisions around what kinds of treatments we give people uh, with the ultimate goal of helping more people recover or helping people recover faster, uh, making care more effective, making care more cost effective. Um, and after a few years, we published a number of papers uh, around this concept of, of treatment recommendation in mental health, uh, building these recommendation engines and, and trying to really personalize decisions that we make about the type of treatment that we give to people uh, and showed really that it could it could drive significantly higher outcomes, right? Potentially up to two times, two times more people getting better, uh, people recovering about eight weeks faster. And so there was just this tremendous opportunity to to help people get better faster, right? And help more people get better with their own mental health journey. And so uh, there was a, it was a very natural kind of point uh, in the evolution of that research, where we had this opportunity to translate that research, uh, to take it from kind of this clinical trial context or this academic context, uh, more of a research side, to actually bringing it to production and helping people, you know, out there get get access to these tools that would help help them get more effective mental health care. And so we founded a company called Spring Health uh, back in 2016 with the goal of of kind of developing this technology, uh, of kind of expanding it to more conditions, to more treatments. Uh, kind of expanding it throughout behavioral health, this kind of core concept of of using data to make better decisions and and ultimately make treatment more effective. Um, and so we founded that company back in 2016. Um, there was there was three of us uh, that founded the company, and I was initially the chief scientist. Uh, and yeah, now the company has grown tremendously. We've raised over 100 million dollars and have a few hundred employees now, uh, based primarily in New York. And, and we partner with large organizations to help them deliver a mental health benefit that's more comprehensive, that's easier to access. You know, that that gives gives them quicker and easier access to the kinds of care that is most likely to work for them. So whether that might be digital solutions, self-guided programs, uh, you know, outpatient therapy, outpatient access to medication, uh, or maybe even higher levels of care, like maybe a residential program or rehab or intensive outpatient programs. Uh, and so we really kind of help 
larger employers kind of revamp their mental health benefits offering and and make care much more accessible and much more effective for their workforce. Wow. Um, yeah, that's incredible. It's interesting uh, what you were mentioning about in the research. It, it, it sounded like you were saying that data around depression was just more prevalent than maybe anxiety or, or other conditions. Do you know, can you say a little more about that or why why was that the case or perhaps still is? Yeah, totally. Uh, I think it mostly just boils down to prevalence, right? Depression is just much more common condition. Uh, and there have just been more clinical trials run on, on depression as opposed to other conditions like maybe bipolar disorder or substance use or schizophrenia or, or kind of just conditions that are just generally less common in, in the general population. Um, and so when we started out, you know, we had this core concept that we could maybe personalize these treatment decisions. And it it came from speaking to psychiatrists, really, when you speak to a psychiatrist and you kind of describe a case, kind of every psychiatrist was trying to make these tailored, trying to tailor the treatment decisions that they make. Uh, but they were kind of doing it in this, you know, some people call it like this artisanal way, kind of the way that the decisions that they would make depended heavily on kind of where they were trained. It depended on on what worked well for their patients in the past. And so you would hear them say like, oh, well, you know, if a patient had you know, depression, but it was mostly sleep symptoms, then maybe we would try, you know, this kind of treatment. Or if they have depression and they're also trying to quit smoking, then maybe we'll try this other treatment. And so they were kind of building up these little rules that uh, in their experience were more effective. And that kind of like, that's kind of like the breadcrumbs for this, for this idea or this hypothesis that you could kind of collect a lot of data around this from lots of different treating providers, kind of structure it all, and then try and make those decisions statistically rather than making it based on based on the experience of every individual psychiatrist. So trying to kind of make more informed decisions by by aggregating and structuring all of this data and then just using, you know, pure statistics or math to try and figure out what treatments are most likely to work for an individual. And so, you know, the kind of the, the key factor in all of that is having access to data. And so initially we decided to start out with depression just because the, the data was much more accessible because there had been all of these clinical trials either done by drug companies or done by academic institutes or done by hospitals or health systems or, you know, as part of the Food and Drug Administration's registry when people try and get drugs approved. And so, you know, it was just um, access to data was just much, much more seamless for depression, I would say, um, particularly, particularly access to large data sets, I would say, you know, if you need maybe hundreds or thousands of patients to build these statistical models, uh, depression was really the only place that we could start. Interesting. So I guess you've now taken that um, and brought it to, you know, the masses, or at least the masses whose employers have signed up with Spring Health. So at least for the case of depression, since you guys seem to know something about what flavors or variations of intervention might work for which person, how does how does treatment actually look for someone signed up for spring health who, who has depression? Do, do you collect information, uh, you know, related to like their symptoms and maybe their uh, behavioral health or maybe their demographic health and then work with like a therapist or a, or a team to try to craft things such that, you know, the, the model has predicted most effectively, like the kind of interventions that that work the best? Like, can you walk me through that a little bit? Yeah, I think that was that was a pretty accurate summary. So when people start out, they come to Spring, they kind of explain what are the kind of issues that they have, what are the goals that they have for treatment. Uh, they tell us a little bit about the specific symptoms that they might be experiencing. So if you have 
you know, if you're if you're feeling symptoms of worthlessness, if you're trying to lose weight, if you are concerned about your body image, if you are having trouble sleeping, if you're having trouble in your relationship, you know, they kind of give us a little bit more information. And uh, and some of this information is um, kind of these structured assessments that exist in mental health care. And so we get a pretty good and comprehensive picture at baseline of the kind of problems that people have and the kind of things that they want to work on, um, you know. Uh, whether that might be current symptoms that they're experiencing right now or, you know, things that they've had in the past, things that they've tried in the past, whether it worked or not. And so we have that initial snapshot of the kinds of things that, they, uh, that they're experiencing. Uh, and that's kind of the core data that we use uh, to, for, for the analytics, right, that we conduct analytics on to try and understand what, tri what types of care might be a best fit, whether that's, you know, what is the overall level of care? Like, is this a, a really concerning issue that we... You know, we need to get this person into care within two hours. Do we need to call the hospital about? Or is this a kind of a level of care that might be best suited for outpatient treatment or kind of, you know, self-guided programs? So making that initial assessment around what is the right level of care for this person and then, you know, going into that level of care, can we make even more personalized recommendations, whether that's around a specific type of therapy, whether that's a specific type of medication? Um, and, and then really gathering up all of that information and giving it to the provider. So ultimately, it's it's really decision support. It's really mm. clinical decision support for the provider. So we would never directly, uh, you know, tell a patient what to do or make that recommendation. But we do want to enrich the decisions that the clinician is making. So, you know, when you go and see that therapist or when you go and see that medication provider, uh, they're operating from, you know, um, just a much more privileged position because they have all information about your goals, your issues in treatment, the things that you've tried in the past, the specific symptoms that you have right now, and they can leverage all of the insights that we can gain from thousands and thousands and thousands of patients, um, you know, so that they can get a better sense of, look, you know, people like this in general work best with these kinds of treatments or people like this, you know, people with this kind of problem generally don't respond to these things. And so we can just help them make more informed decisions when they put together the treatment plan and they ultimately decide what medication or what therapeutic approach they want to go with. Got it. Yeah, that's kind of what was the crux of my question, because I was trying to wonder how, you know, your team of, you know, data scientists and other people doing analytics interact with the providers. But it seems like you're just kind of making them like enriching them and turning them into this sort of super provider that all of a sudden has almost like a dashboard about the patient's history and, and what they're like, along with all these sort of data driven insights about the kinds of medications or maybe duration of treatment or perhaps even dosage, I'm not sure. But uh, it seems like they're, in a, as you were saying, in a much more privileged position than your everyday psychologist or psychiatrist who will do, like I guess, a very thorough, you know, an hour, maybe two hour long intake, but still won't have outside just sort of anecdotally or what they learned in school, this, you know, rich set of maybe machine learning models or just sort of causal or correlative trends that they can lean on uh, to to help um, come up with a plan. Totally agree. Um, you know, sometimes in the early days, people would say, are you trying to replace providers? Or, you know, it's, it's never been about that. It's, it's really about enriching the decisions that they make. It's about raising the bar. It's about giving them access to, to data. It's about making their lives easier uh, and helping them make more informed decisions, right? I think in general, the providers out there, they want to do a good job for their patients. And so, you know, when you say like, hey, you know, this is the patient that you're about to see and here's what we know about them. And here's what happened to the last 10,000 patients that were treated that had similar kinds of problems, that had similar sociodemographic profiles, that had similar levels of depression or anxiety or, you know, body dysmorphia or whatever it might be. 
Um, and here are the treatments that work best for them. You know, these kind of patients generally work well with this kind of provider. Those kind of patients generally work well with these kinds of treatments. And to just do a better job of, of enriching the decisions that are made and using structured data in the background. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, humans are only, you know, they're not robots, right? You can only remember so much from your from your medical education, from your clinical training, from all of the patients that you've ever seen. There's always going to be things like recency bias or primacy bias. Uh, and and just being able to give them data that is structured and that is, um, you know, it's data, right? I think it's a, it's a totally different situation and it just helps them make better decisions and it helps them ultimately be a better provider. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really wonderful. Um, and it, it's so cool to be able to take an academic project that you find like, I guess, statistical significance in and really enrich people's lives with it. That's the plan. Yeah. So I'm wondering, I guess I'm wondering a couple things uh, sort of about like the onboarding process for, for providers and how they get used to uh, working with all this information. But also it, it seems like you guys might be uh, finding some insights that could w- one day wind up in, you know, medical textbooks or, you know, psych, psych, psychiatric manuals or psychological manuals. Is, is there a, and I know, of course, you guys are a for-profit company, so that's kind of your secret sauce, but you know, in the long run, will other companies be doing the same thing and you guys will all sort of uh, tend towards the same sort of conclusions about these things? Or, um, you know, how how privileged is this information? Or like in the long run, will, will everyone sort of tr- psychologists in training, you know, like people pursuing their PhDs, will they have access to these kinds of insights? Or what do you think that looks like in the future? Yeah, it's such a good point. I, I think that it's not just about psychiatry. I think it's about everything in medicine. I think if you look at radiology, if you look at oncology, if you look at critical care, there are, you know, throughout medicine, I think there is this trend towards aggregating and structuring data around trying to extract insights from it, around trying to make better decisions. Uh, and ultimately, I don't think it's a, it's a psychiatry thing. I think think that there are gains to be had across the whole of medicine. Um you know, certain areas are obviously a lot more built out than, than others, right? I think that psychiatry was maybe a little bit late to the party just because um, we had a maybe a, a less clear-cut biological understanding of, of some of these diseases and some of these disease processes. Uh, and, you know, so if other areas of medicine might have been initially more well-suited to this kind of application of precision or the introduction of precision. But I think that uh, I think it's an everywhere in medicine thing. You know, specifically about some of those insights, um, we publish papers, we continue to publish papers, you know, we are a for profit company, but you know, there is a lot of precedent for 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 profit companies, publishing articles and sharing the insights that they have. If you look at companies like Flatiron, even in New York, and uh, a company in the oncology space, they continue to publish uh, as they go along. And so I would expect us to continue to do that. Um, I don't think that the goal is to really hog insights. And I don't think that that in itself is just uh, it is kind of like the company's moat. Uh, I think it's a key part of of what we do, and I think it's a key part of the vision, and it will continue to to drive value for you know for customers, for members, for, for shareholders. But um, but yeah, I, I don't think uh, it doesn't sharing anything that we learn or, or publishing or inviting other experts to vet what we do. I think it just makes us a better company, and I think it's the right thing to do. So uh, we've never really felt any tension in, in that way. Totally, totally. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for clarifying that. Um. Can you talk a little bit about some of the hard problems or, or, or also can you comment on maybe the landscape of, you know, mental health, uh, maybe specifically in the United States or maybe the world at large or what, what's it like to be in the arena of, you know, starting a mental health tech company, especially 
um, obviously you guys are, are are older than the pandemic, but I'm sure you know the pandemic and people staying at home has uh, impacted the way that you do business. I, I would assume. So I, I think that's a bit of a word salad there. But if anything in there, um, you know, resonates, maybe you can respond to it. I think it's fiercely competitive. Uh, I think that the problem had been growing for a long time, whether you look at things like the opioid epidemic, or if you look at the rise in, in suicide, whether you look in the, the rise in adolescent mental health problems, I think that the, the problem had been growing long before the pandemic came. And so, you know, I think that is that coupled with, you know, this, well, this underlying large need, you know, coupled with this new demand from customers, uh, kind of a willingness to do something different, um, uh, an explicit statement that the status quo with things like health plans or employee assistance programs, that it's just not working for them. I think that combination, once you, you know, once a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people recognize that and kind of investors started to pump money into the space, you, you know, you realize that the, the market has become incredibly competitive. And so I think, you know, even amongst maybe four or five startups alone in the, in the US alone, I think between all of us, we raised over a billion dollars in the last 12 months. Uh, and so, you know, it really does kind of create this incredibly competitive market an incredibly fast moving market. A lot of companies hiring a lot of people, uh, you know, signing a lot of customers, treating a lot of patients, and so it's it's definitely a very fast moving, um, fast moving and competitive space, I would say. Um, and and it's interesting that you mentioned global as well. I think global is um, global is kind of the next frontier. I think there has been a ton of of focus on on the way that we can improve mental health care in the U.S., but I wouldn't say that it's um, that it's exclusive. I think that most of the large organizations in the U.S. kind of you know, when you look at flagship companies like Adobe or Pfizer, all of these companies have employees globally. Um, and it's important to them, you know, it's just as important to them uh, for, for their for their workforces to be happier and healthier globally. Uh, you know, whether that employee works in Italy or whether that employee works in the US or whether they work in China, you know, ultimately they still have the same goal, which is for those employees to be happier and healthier and more productive and, and contribute more successfully to the, to the growth of the company. And so, um, I, I think that, you know, although competition over the last maybe five years has focused primarily on the U.S., I think that increasingly you'll see more more competition globally, either from startups that are founded in other countries or from these this kind of new crop of U.S. companies continuing to glo- go global and deliver more services globally. I mean, we've been delivering services globally for over a year now uh, and continue to invest in that direction. So I strongly expect that other companies will be doing the same. Cool. Yeah, thanks for, for that. Um, is this is less about mental health and more, I guess, just about business. But why why are you guys offering your services through employers instead of just sort of directly to consumers through? I, I know you have an app, but it, it seems like the way you sign up with Spring Health is is through an employer. So is there is there anything there that you can comment on? Yeah. So I would say, uh, you know, companies generally do need to pick a business model. Some companies have been successful with this direct-to-consumer model. I guess Talkspace would be the, the the earliest or the most obvious name that did it, that successfully pulled it off. There was companies like Calm and Headspace that offered these more subclinical or meditation or mindfulness or kind of subclinical content uh, that was our also direct-to-consumer. And so, you know, I, I think that the direct-to-consumer business model can work. Um, I just think it's very different from the employer business model or from a different business model of selling to payers or health plans. But yeah, but you're right, though. Spring is is only available uh, through your employer uh, at this moment. So, you know, the podcast is called the Anxiety Book Club. And so far, we've only talked about depression. So I'm sure the 
the readers are are excited and impatient to talk about anxiety. Is there, at least now, since you guys have been in business for six years and been collecting a lot of data, is there different paths towards success with the treatment of anxiety or any of its sort of uh, conditions under its umbrella? Is there something interesting to say about uh, data-driven anxiety treatment? I think that the principle applies equally in anxiety, right? I think if, if we look at our book of business, it, it's about equal, about kind of tied in top spot, how many people get diagnosed with an anxiety disorder or how many people get diagnosed with uh, depressive disorder. Um, I would say that if you look at clinical trials, you know, we often talk about patients with depression or patients with anxiety. Um, but I think in, in the real world, I think those two conditions are super, super comorbid. Um, and it's extremely common for people to, to maybe screen positive and maybe even get a diagnosis with both. I think in the in reality, it can sometimes be hard to tease the two apart, right? People might have certain symptoms that kind of are traditionally considered to be symptoms of depression. Some people might have, um, you know, a diagnosis of anxiety, but also, you know, present with a lot of symptoms of depression and kind of vice versa. So um, I, I would say though, that that's an even bigger opportunity to use data, right? To help people try and hone in initially on the right diagnosis and then, you know, on the right treatment plan for them. Um, but uh, there is also a lot of overlap in the kinds of treatments that we use, right? Like the SSRIs being the primary form of medication for both kinds of, uh, for both conditions and, and talk therapy being highly effective for both conditions as well. Things like cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy is, um, you know, also very effective for both depression or anxiety or maybe a mixture of the two. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank you. I, I mean, I guess I was wondering if there's some secret sauce for anxiety that we haven't discussed on the podcast yet that you you, you might have uh, discovered somewhere deep within your data sets. I wish. Um, I wish and I, I do hope for that future as well. Um, I think ultimately it's really it's really a framework, right? It's less um, it's more about setting up that infrastructure uh, and collecting and structuring all of that data, making it available to the right people at the right time. Uh, I, I think for me, that's the secret sauce. It's less so about the insight that you derive because, you know, whatever you learn is really only about the patients that you've seen so far. Maybe you've seen 10,000 patients, maybe you've seen 20,000 patients. But, you know, I think the core uh, belief is that as we grow and as we continue to treat more and more patients, that we learn from all of their experiences. We we build a more diverse picture. Uh, we build a more robust picture. We, we see different kinds of patients in different kinds of situations with different kinds of problems. And I think ultimately over time, the data is what's going to shake out uh, and help us make more informed decisions. I, I don't think that we would, um, you know, I'd be disappointed if I, I would be disappointed and I would be surprised if, if there was like a thing that we had to figure out and that we'd already figured it out now. I think it's still, you know, early days for the field. Um, and I think honestly, maybe if, if there was such an easy, if there was an easy solution, I think people might have figured it out before, right? People have been studying anxiety and depression for a long time and, you know, if there was just this one trick of, you know, people who have this kind of problem or this kind of symptom respond best to this kind of treatment, I think the clinicians probably would have figured it out by now. Um, and so, you know, I would expect the, I would expect the findings uh, to look more like patterns, uh, kind of like a mosaic across lots of different dimensions, rather than for it to just kind of have one clear, you know, if this, then that, or even if this and this, then that, I would expect it to be a much more complex relationship uh, when it does eventually reveal itself. Gotcha. Well, we'll be waiting patiently for that here at the Anxiety Book Club. Um, I, I for, for readers or listeners who aren't so familiar, I, 
I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like what the landscape for mental health care like used to look like or looks like now or what I guess the question really is like what's wrong with uh traditional models or methods of delivering mental health care which I assume you know leaves space open for companies like Spring Health to um you know really offer something unique and and really efficacious but it, it, were were traditional models of mental health care especially for depression just not really helping improve uh, symptoms or, or not fast enough, or there was like lots of relapse. Um, how, how good is the science or treatment of depression, um, you know, pre this sort of situation that we're in now and, 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 and maybe where is it headed? Yeah, it's such a, it's it's such a fun question. Um, I I would say it's important for us to not like throw the baby out with the bathwater. I would, I would say, we have made a lot of progress, right? Even within our lives, within our parents' lives, you know, you don't have to go that far back in time before kind of a primary treatment for mental health was restraint, before there were, there were things like sanitariums, right? Before 30-day residential program was kind of a default, right? Uh, people would be kind of locked up and, and kind of, you know, we had a sa- insane asylums, right? Uh, that, that wasn't that long ago. And I would say that we've learned a tremendous amount since then either through, you know, uh, an acknowledgement and an awareness that most mental health conditions are treatable, uh, that they are treatable potentially over a short time horizon, either through things like medications and the SSRIs were tremendously successful, all things like structured talk therapies, uh, which were also tremendously successful, like cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy. Um, and so, you know, nowadays, I think that especially in the US, there, there is a lot that we should be happy about, right? It's, it's, it's not seen as a as a damning diagnosis, you know, there's a lot more awareness of it. People are much more willing to talk about it. People are more open about it. Um, and so I think that we've made progress. You know, that being said, I think there is tremendous room for opportunity. If you look at things like diagnosis, the kind of the downside of it is misdiagnosis. And I think that misdiagnosis is, is incredibly common in mental health. If you look at uh, things like treatment response, you know, antidepressants, they work, but they don't work for everyone every single time. People kind of go through this trial and error process of trying to figure out the right treatment for them, you know, to the point where only about 30% of people actually recover first time round. Same thing is true for, for anxiety, right? If someone goes into therapy for anxiety, again, in clinical trials, maybe 40, maybe 50% of people will fully recover the first line of treatment. And so, again, we're still talking about a minority of people actually recovering first time round. So, you know, in some ways, we've made tremendous progress because we have these outpatient treatments that work, that are kind of structured, where we kind of know how, um, you know, we can kind of predict, um, or at least we know that they will be reliably effective and, and safe. So, so that's a great thing. On the other side, you know, they're, they're not universally effective. And so we certainly need more. I think on the second side, um, in the US especially, treatment is still too expensive, and I think access is still too slow. Um, both of those, I think, are just completely completely true. I think if someone wants to get mental health care in the US, I think if you're even if you're treatment seeking, the process is incredibly complex. Uh, you have to kind of go to your health plan or to your employee assistance program, or you kind of just randomly search for stuff online. Even when you find a provider, you don't know if they're going to be financially accessible to you, right? You don't know how much that provider costs. You don't know whether they accept your insurance. Are they in network? Are they out of network? Is there coinsurance? Is there a deductible? You know, it's, it's incredibly complex, even for someone who's who has a, um, a lot of experience with it or someone who's actually in the industry. And then even if you could afford it, the, these providers, you know, they'll tell you, they'll tell you it takes 21 days, it takes 28 days, uh, something like that for the national average of someone to actually get an appointment, to be able to get an appointment and get into treatment. And so 
you know, it's, it's just not acceptable, right? If someone has a health condition and they're treatment seeking and they're ready for it and you have things that you can do that would help, I think waiting 28 days or 21 days is just not good enough. Um, and so I think that there's there's room for disruption across the board. I think people need access to care. I think, you know, people should have more education and more awareness about mental health conditions, about how they arise, about what we know about those conditions, about how to be supportive, about if you do need help, where to go. And then when you go to those places, you should receive care that is, uh, you know, accessible to you in a, in a reasonable amount of time. We're talking like maybe a couple of days, not a couple of months. Uh, that the care should be financially accessible to you, right? It shouldn't be prohibitive for you to be able to get into care. And so, you know, there's certainly a lot of, um, you know, a lot of opportunity around this issue of cash pay networks of therapists who are charging, you know, $300 or $400 a session. Um, And then once people go into care, I think that there's still a lot of room for us to make care more effective and help people figure out what's right for them. I think there's so much opportunity. I don't think that the disruption is limited to one of those things. I think, Mental health is a huge space. And I, I think that no matter where you look, you see many, many opportunities to do things better. And I think that big businesses can be built around any of those opportunities because I think you can make care more accessible, you can make it cheaper, you can make it more effective. Uh, and I think that if you do that and you can kind of align stakeholders around it, then you can make money and you can deliver a better experience for, for people. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like, a from your point of view, a pretty wide field. And it's a, you know, it's a happy coincidence that it uh, is something that businesses can be built around. And also this is good work, right? This is um, limiting suffering in people's lives. Like this is the difference between like, you know, an hour of, of pain or maybe an hour of bliss or perhaps just a neutral uh, sort of hour where you're not in some kind of mental crisis or, or feeling really, um, you know, outside of yourself or just in a lot of mental pain. So it's really amazing and, and awesome that, you know, the work that you're doing and just the time that we live in, I guess, for in the capitalist model that we have, you know, in, in Western countries that uh, the two are sort of emerging hand in hand to solve people's problems and, and also, you know, make jobs and make make successful companies at the same time. Totally. I think we're really in the first innings. Uh, I think that there is so much more room for, room for improvement. I think that we're really just you know, barely scratching the surface of what we can do. I think we're fixing a lot of relatively simple operational things. And I don't even think that we've, I don't even think that we've started to tap the true potential for, for helping people understand, you know, more about care, more about what care is right for them, more about what, what specifically, what are the key ingredients of care that is helping that individual get better as opposed to another individual. I think there's so much room for, for improvement across the board. I think initially we're focusing on these things like access and uh, you know, video or in-person care or on scheduling or on billing, kind of the um, kind of the technology basics, right, that already exist in other areas of healthcare. I think that we're still very much focused on those as an industry overall. And I think that, you know, um, there's so much, there's so much more room for what we can do in the future. And I think that the future is incredibly, incredibly bright. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear you say that. I'm wondering if you have your own sort of mental health journey or um, something that like inspires you to work in the field or, you know, how it feels to be, you know, working in the space that you're in and making the kind of impact that you are, or just maybe about how you take care of yourself, given all the data you're sitting on, you must have uh, access to some, some good tips or, or, or practices. I definitely, I, I'm a huge fan of exercise. Um, I definitely need exercise to keep me sane. 
uh, keep me grounded. Um, I've definitely struggled a lot with anxiety in the past, um, less so depression, but but certainly a lot of anxiety. And and for me, kind of keeping a core exercise regime has been probably the most useful thing. I think it's good for kind of releasing some of that physical tension. It gives you a clear time. It's all, you know, especially with things like cycling, for me, it's a little bit meditative, right? Like I'm out there, I'm just riding my bike. I'm not really thinking about, uh, you know, work or relationships or family or anything like that. And so it's kind of a little uh, escapist. So I would say exercise was huge for me, for sure. Um, I mean, there, there's also lots of other things that you can do, but I would say that exercise was one thing that kind of helped me stay in maintenance, for sure. Awesome. Yeah, I'm also a, a huge uh, cyclist myself, and I can certainly testify to it being a, a nice way to get out of the house and, and blow off some steam. Yeah. Um, do you think there's a future in which the Spring Health app recommends a bike ride? Yeah, it's, it's such a uh, funny you ask. We uh, we actually published a paper uh, maybe 20, 2018, I guess now. Wow, two years ago. Uh, almost three years ago now. Um that was around this concept of like, what can we personalize exercise recommendations? And so we actually did this huge study using data from the CDC. Uh, we published the article in the Lancet Psychiatry. Uh, and, and it was really at this, trying to tackle this question of, of like, you know, we know that exercise in general is effective. And it is funny, it's funny how this conversation has emerged because we kind of got the idea from our own personal experiences, right? Like I'll say, Oh, I really like exercise, but I like cycling. And someone else will say, Oh, I really like exercise too, but I like yoga. And so we were kind of curious whether there was any difference in kind of the effectiveness of exercise for different mental health conditions. Uh, we know that exercise can be prescribed and it's, you know, incredibly effective overall, whether it's for mental health or for obvious, you know, cardiovascular strength, uh, cardiovascular fitness for hypertension, for, for, for diabetes, for weight loss, for whatever. Um, and so we started out to try and try and get whatever data we could to understand what people's you know self-reported well-being looked like to, as a function of the exercise that they do. And so we did show in a, in a really large sample, I think it was 1.2 million people uh, in that sample, showing that firstly, you know, people who exercised had significantly better mental health than, than people who didn't. But then amongst those who exercised, we kind of broke it down by what was their primary type of exercise. Do they do they like walking? Do they like cycling? Do they like you know, aerobic fitness, do they like weightlifting, whatever it was, I don't remember all of the categories. Uh, and then, and then showed that, you know, exercises, there were a few kind of key conclusions. One was that any kind of exercise is better than nothing. And so even if you can only walk or do chores at home, like, even that seemed to be better than not doing anything. But then, you know, some exercises, cycling being one of them, did seem more effective than others, uh, in terms of being associated with with better well being. Uh, and then we start to kind of break it down in a more nuanced way. You know, if you exercise, how long should you exercise for? Do you need to exercise for 60 minutes? Should you exercise for 30 minutes? You know, and we start to, to try and unpack that effect of how long should people exercise? What is kind of the optimal number of times per week? What is the optimal intensity? And start to kind of unpack all of that data. And so, um, yeah, super excited about, about that work. Um, people should check out the paper if they're interested. And then I would really encourage anyone who's listening, likes to play with data, to go and get the same data. I think... Uh, it's all publicly available, and I'm happy to give you access to the repos, and you can play with it. Um, but I do think that you could personalize that as well. I think that you could give people exercise recommendations. Um, I think that at minimum, you know, just some product support around helping people remember to exercise, helping people get the motivation to exercise uh, will be useful, just given that people who exercise at all have better mental health. 
Um, but then, you know, for people who are really in pursuit of, of kind of optimization or, or perfection, I think that there is, you know, there are differences between different kinds of exercises. And I think that you could probably personalize that decision too. I would love it if we got to a point where we could really say, you know, for you, given the problems that you have, given the goals that you have in treatment, uh, you know, this is the exact exercise regime for you. Like, I think if you cycle, you know, two days a week, or if you go swimming three days a week for 30 minutes, then that's going to give you the best, you know, bang for your buck from a mental health perspective. I would love that day to come. And I, I encourage anyone, um, anyone to try and try to prove it. Yeah. Yeah. You could go to your doctor and they'd say, um, you know, swim for two hours and call me in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with exercise, it's, uh, it's one of those like awesome situations because the intervention is often free or certainly low cost. And, and then the side effect profile is very favorable, right? It's like, even if it didn't work for your mental health, you know, it, we know that it's proven to reduce your risk of stroke and improves cardiovascular strength. It has all of these other, you know, happy outcomes. So it's, um, it's kind of like a win-win, right? Even if it, it seems like it does help people, uh, both as an as a treatment itself, as an adjunctive, it's correlated with with lower um, lower distress or, or happier well being. Um, but even if it didn't, it would still be a great thing for people to do. And so, a great low cost, high effectiveness thing to do. So, yeah, anything that we can do to improve the access or uptake of exercise, I think, is a great thing. Totally, yeah. For those listeners who are unfamiliar, exercise is good. <laughs> um, I know it's funny. Everyone knows yeah. it, but it's so easy to say. It's so hard to do. Yeah, a lot of people either haven't found their sport or just, I don't know, uh, have some aversion towards it, don't don't like sweating, or it's just not or fun. Or they're just tired. Or just or tired, tired, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess uh, we can wrap up pretty soon. We've been talking for a while, but I, I'm trying to think of, you know, when, when people think about making like the social sciences more mathematical or more effective, they're like, okay, well, we should be like physics, you know, we should add math here and 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 then people will respect us and will be more impactful and i'm i'm trying to think of what the analogous case here is like i think like cataract surgeries are like very highly effective right if you have a cataract you find the right doctor he you know he fixes your eye and i guess i'm wondering sort of going back to what we were talking about before like you know where wh when is the day where someone comes in with an anxiety problem and you know levels of effectiveness are sort of as high as um, really well-known treatments in, you know, the other side of, of health, which is the body below, you know, the, below the neck, um, you know, what that future looks like. Yeah. Um, well, again, I, I kind of, I, I want to make sure that we keep the, the situation in context. I would say that if you look at the effectiveness of, of at least medications in mental health, it's pretty consistent with the effectiveness that you see in other areas of healthcare, right? If you take something like, if you, if you think about then the number needed to treat being kind of one way that you can standardize it, that's if you give some, if you give, or how many people do you have to give a medication to, you know, who have a certain condition for you to turn one bad outcome into a good outcome. That's kind of like a common way that people think about evaluating the effectiveness of different treatments, right? And for something like a vaccine, it's incredibly low. I, you don't have to do many vaccines for someone to, to have a good event rather than a bad event. But actually, if you look at other uh, other uh, treatments like statins for high blood pressure, they can actually have incredibly high numbers needed to treat, right? Like where you have to give a statin to something like 50 or 100 people to, to turn one bad outcome into a good outcome. And so if you look at the number needed to treat for, for you know, antidepressants or for SSRIs for people who have depression or anxiety, the number needed to treat is not that bad. It's like something like eight or maybe 10, which is pretty consistent with many, many treatments across 
uh, different areas of medicine. So I would say, you know, we're not in a, in a terrible place, right? We have treatments that are overall effective. And, and so that's a good thing. That being said, you know, if, if it's a 50-50 shot of whether you're going to recover, you know, we're not in a great place, right? We would obviously love that number to be higher. Um, I think so far at Spring, we've, we've shown that we can have great outcomes, much higher than you would see in traditional clinical trials. And I think that that comes from really implementing clinical best practices around helping people uh, do a better job of screening, uh, you know, for what kind of conditions people might have and getting a, a better handle on the diagnosis, about getting a better understanding of the problems that people have um, around you know, making sure that when people do get a treatment, that they get the right dose of treatment, whether it's a medication or whether they get the right frequency of therapy, if they're going into talk therapy, uh, around checking in with those patients every week or every two weeks to make sure that they're still on track, to bring to bring data to those decisions so that the providers and the patients can have a shared understanding of whether treatment is going well. You know, so there are lots of things that we can do. And in, and in combination, those things, they do work. We do have significantly higher, you know, outcomes than you would expect in a clinical trial. So, you know, I certainly think that we're getting there, um, and I hope that we continue to to push that number higher. I would love to see, you know, eighty percent success rate, ninety percent success rate for a first treatment for depression or anxiety. Um, you know, I think that we can get there because if if you look at the overall success rate, you know, whether whether it's first time or second time or third time, you know, eventually most patients do get better. You know, it's only a relative minority in mental health. Uh, of patients that have depression or anxiety that that truly never get better or, or they have kind of a chronic condition that lasts many, many years. And so I think that if we can accelerate that trial and error process and if we can really enforce and adhere uh, adhere to clinical best practices and, and deliver measurement-based care for all of these individuals who are in outpatient care, I think that we can get that number much higher. And so I'm you know excited for much, much more effective care already today and, uh, and even more so in the future. Cool. Yeah, that's a really um, promising uh, view, and I'm, I'm glad that someone as in the know as you um, holds that because it sounds, if not downright rosy, at least you know very optimistic. We um, have to be optimistic, yes. right? If we want things to get better in the future. Uh, yeah, it seems like a, a, a better than the opposite tack you might take. I know we can't give up. No, we can't give up. Things things are improving, and things will continue to improve. We just have to kind of. Um, be sustained in our application, right? And and always keep pushing to do better. Always ask, you know, what are the areas for improvement? Always keep on being rigorous about looking at the data and, and understanding what's working, what's not working, and double down in the areas that are working and, and kind of, you know, fix things that are not working. So uh, my last two questions I'll leave you with, you can answer one or both or in any order is, is one just about you know, uh, what advice you might give for someone uh, seeking seeking health, uh, mental health care, or maybe employers um, seeking to adopt a, a program like Spring Health for their employees or organization, um, and also sort of just like what the what the future holds for you and for Spring Health, and and how might people get involved or or watch out for you know what's on the horizon, um, so things like that. Yeah. The, the first question around um, what can people do? Definitely reach out to your HR team. Ask them what mental health resources are available to you as an employee. Uh, you should know that that's an incredibly normal question nowadays, and that pretty much uh, pretty much every company has at least an employee assistance program and a health plan in place. Uh, and now more and more employees are actually offering these kind of comprehensive benefits like Spring. And so it's a very normal question for you to ask your employer. Uh, you shouldn't feel awkward about the expectation that they offer a strong mental health benefit. That's also very normal these days. Um, 
And so definitely, you know, be vocal, reach out to your HR team, uh, ask them what they have in place. If they don't have something like Spring, you can certainly recommend that they reach out to us or, or ask them to look into something like Spring. Um, many, many companies already have it and, and even more companies are looking into it right now. So um, it's, a, it's a totally normal question and, and you should know that, you know, if you're not happy with the, the offering at your, your current company, that other companies have a different outlook and a different philosophy towards employee well-being. Um, yeah. And then about us as a company, definitely we're hiring, uh, we're hiring across the board. So if people are interested and, uh, you know, want to think about a career in mental health or, you know, an opportunity where they can apply their own skill set to, to a mission like this, then definitely reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, Adam, it's been a it's been a real pleasure. And again, I think the perspective that you have to share on the problem is super, super unique and not something that this uh, audience or this podcast has had access to. So thank you so much for for making some time with us today. Awesome. Very happy to be here. Thanks a lot, Josh.